0: Indeed, O Lord, You are worthy, and we long to see Your worth. And so as the Word is open today, would You show us more and more of our need of You and Your grace toward us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Take out your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the last two verses of Jude. This is our last sermon in the study of Jude. We'll be moving on to the Letters to the churches of Asia Minor in the book of Revelation. If we were to summarize what we've seen so far in Jude, we'd say it's been almost all warning. Warning about false teachers who are corrupting the church and leading some astray. But we don't close with warning, we close with a word of blessing. Listen to God's word, Jude verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will indeed stand forever. In seminary, one of the things we were taught in our homiletics classes—homiletics is just really the study of preaching—one of the things we were taught was that our opening illustration needs to be something that really draws people in and engages your attention. But the risk of your attention span and my job security, I'm going to deviate from that approach this morning, and I'm going to talk about something that most of us would actually consider incredibly boring— and that is English grammar. In fact, unless you are trying to get through an English grammar class or you happen to be a grammar teacher, you probably think that grammar is quite irrelevant to your life. And of all the the parts of grammar that you might have studied, one of the ones that seems perhaps the most inconsequential to you are prepositions. Do you remember prepositions? I, I looked up a technical definition, but it wouldn't have been much help to most of us. But prepositions are words like in and on and from and by. It shows relationship. You use them all the time, but I assume that for most of us, it's been a very long time since we thought about what a preposition is for. What if I told you that the power of the gospel lies in the prepositions? Now some of you would be thinking, if I have to know what a preposition is to get into heaven, I'm in huge trouble. Well, praise God, we are not saved by grammatical prowess, but by grace, through faith, to the glory of God. That's a sentence that is loaded with prepositions, isn't it? And it shows us what it means when I say that the power of our salvation lies in the prepositions. If you think about how prepositions have helped us Thus far in Jude's gospel, I could summarize Jude like this. In in the first verse, we saw that we are called by the Spirit, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Christ Jesus. And then you move on, and Jude Jude warns us that false teachers have crept into the congregation. They were teaching that if you are under grace, then you can go on in sin. And Jude's response was that such teaching puts us in great danger, and so we must be on guard, because regularly hearing false teaching is a serious thing. It's like the continual dripping of slow poison into the mind. In these two closing verses, which are, if you've been here a while, you know this is my favorite benediction. It's not actually a benediction really at all, but a doxology. It's an amazing summary of the Christian message. I hope you realize that. The benediction is not just our way of saying that's all, folks. It's a summary of the whole gospel. And when you depart under the benediction, it's a reminder that as you walk through those doors, you are under the blessing, the benediction of Jesus Christ. Well, there's three things I want you to see in these two verses, and they're loaded with prepositions. These verses show us that we are saved from God's wrath, we are saved through God's Son, and we are saved for God's glory. From God's wrath, through God's Son, for God's glory. We'll look at those three things today. First, we're saved from God's wrath. Now, let me do a little bit more of a recap of what we've been studying here in Jude. Jude was written he, Jude said in the beginning, I'd love to just boast with you in our common salvation, but I found it necessary to write to you about some who have crept into the church unnoticed. He says they're ungodly people who are teaching ungodly things, and they're leading people astray in two ways, through errant teaching and errant living. And Jude says, here's what you need to know about them. Here's why you need to take this seriously. These, according to verse 4, these are people who have been marked out or designated for condemnation from long ago. He says in verse 13, blackest darkness is reserved for them. Verse 15, he says, they will be judged and convicted. Now Jude says that not only as a warning to them, but as a warning to the hearers because he wants to say, you know, some of you are being led astray by these false teachers. That's why he said in verse 23, which we saw last week, he urged them to snatch people out of the fire. That's how serious these false teachings are. And so you can imagine that as Jude has been talking about such weighty stuff of condemnation and wrath and all of that stuff, some in the congregation, especially those with tender consciences, might worry for themselves. Well, well, what about me? Does this mean I'm not a Christian? I've, I've sometimes succumbed to, to immorality, or I've sometimes thought things about God and the gospel that were wrong. How do I know that I'm not going to be like these false Christians who once seemed to be believers, but now they've wandered away from the faith? You can imagine some of them would have been fearful. Uh, They would have been concerned, and they're wondering, is the wrath of God going to be poured out on me as well, just as it is for these false teachers that you're telling us about? Now, I know that civilized good people are not supposed to talk about things like the wrath of God, but I have never known this church to be too concerned with what the world thinks of us. And I'm not particularly concerned with it, because I know one day I'll stand before God, and I want to be found faithful to the work which he has given to me, and I have a twofold duty as a pastor to, on the one hand, proclaim the wonders of God and at the same time to proclaim the warnings of the wrath of God. Pastors have to talk about these things. John Calvin, the Genevan reformer, said this about preaching. He says, Preaching is the public exposition of Scripture by the man sent from God in which God himself is present in judgment and in grace. I, that means if you only preach half of that message, if you pre- preach grace without the warnings of, of judgment, without talking about wrath, then in a sense, God is only half present, is what Calvin's saying. Now, sincere Christians know that as unpopular as the idea of wrath is today in our world, we can't not talk about it because there is a God who judges sin. And not only does he judge sin, but he will judge my sin and your sin. Let me show you that in a few places in Scripture. Take your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. This is is the the plainest sense in which we see God judging sin. Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, if you know that story, you know they ate, and you know that sin came into the world with their eating. Now, did they physically die in that moment? No, but there was a far worse death. Do you you realize that, right? There's a far worse death than physical death, and that's spiritual death. That's to be under the wrath of God. And Adam and Eve, in eating the forbidden fruit, came under the judgment of God. And God is consistent in that message. Listen to the words of Ezekiel 18, verse 20. Ezekiel says, "'The soul that sins, it shall die.'" you know, the the Old Testament is serious about wrath. You know that, right? There's 20 different words used to speak of God's wrath, and they're used a combined 580 times in the Old Testament. That probably doesn't surprise you that the Old Testament speaks of God's wrath so frequently, but do you know what individual in the pages of Scripture spoke most of God's wrath? The Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus Himself. He spoke of fiery hell and eternal destruction and weeping and gnashing of teeth. The apostle Paul spoke uh, in Romans 6 23, the wages of sin are death. I know some of you have been to churches where you don't talk about things like wrath. It's offensive, but the script, God is unashamed. The scriptures are unashamed to speak the whole counsel of God's word, and if we leave out wrath, we leave out really any logical understanding of who God is. Sometimes people will say, well, I I refuse to believe in a God of wrath. Let me tell you, if you have any objection to the wrath of God as the righteous response to human sin, it's not that there's something wrong with God, it's something wrong with your heart. Because if you understand how holy God is and how sinful sin really is, then you understand that the only righteous response by God is to judge sin. If if you think God is unjust to judge sin, then you know nothing of the holiness of God. He is perfectly holy in every way. And an essential part of the holiness of God is how much he hates sin. He's a consuming fire, according to Hebrews 12, 29, who feels indignation every day against the wicked, Psalm 7 says. He hates wickedness, Psalm 45 says. And therefore, he will destroy sinners in the day of judgment. Not because he's a bad God, but because he's a good God who loves goodness and will not tolerate evil. A.W. Pink says, the wrath of God is the holiness of God stirred into activity. It's the holiness of God stirred into activity. By what? By human sin. Wrath isn't a mark of God's imperfection, but rather it's a mark of his perfection. He would be an imperfect God if he did not judge sin. Do you understand that? friends, do you understand that if you were to stand before God right now with all your good and all that you, your bad that you've ever done, you would be covered in the filth of sin and his holiness would absolutely destroy you. You know, that's what Jude is talking about in verse 24. Look there, he says, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to cause you to stand blameless before the presence of his glory, Jude's making a point, you can't do that. He alone can make you presentable for himself, but on your own you are covered in the filth of sin and under the wrath of God. And Jude understands, and I hope you understand, that if you are not trusting in the Lord Jesus, there will be a day where you will stand judgment, and the wrath of God will be poured out against you, and every sin you've ever committed will stand up and testify against you. This is not easy stuff to talk about. I'd I'd much rather talk about fun stuff right now. do you know where not talking about the wrath of God has gotten the church today in America? It's created a modern church that loves this idea of salvation, but has no idea what we need to be saved from. It's created a a church that talks about the Great Commission, but has no idea what the message of the Great Commission is. It's a church that that gathers together week after week, but has no idea why it exists. Richard Niebuhr, not an evangelical Christian, he lived in the, was the first half of the 1900s, he wrote about what he saw happening in the church even a hundred years ago. And here's what he said is happening in many churches. He said, "We see in many churches a God without wrath who brought man without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross." In other words, if we forget about the wrath of God, we have no idea why the rest of Christianity exists. Without wrath, the gospel is irrelevant to you and me. Until I understand what I deserve, I have no clue what Jesus accomplished. We think of Christianity as being all about love and grace, and it abounds in those two things more than you and I can imagine. But that love and grace only makes sense against the backdrop of a holy God who will not, who cannot stand in the presence of evil and must judge sin. A God who is all grace and mercy but does not judge sin is an idol. That is not the God of the Bible. And let me assure you in the end, everyone will know that such a god does not exist i was talking with a couple of young boys from this church this week who are very well trained in the gospel their parents have done a great job and i said to one of them and this was totally my fault i asked the question badly i said how do we go to heaven and one of them said get hit by a car (laughs) but you know that is really what our culture thinks prevailing idea in our culture today is not justification by faith alone. It's not even justification by works. It's justification by death. How many funerals have you been to where the person was a heathen? They never trusted in Jesus Christ, but the preacher's doing their best to try to preach them into heaven. It is not justification by death. We will all stand before God one day. And we will stand before him either covered in the filth of our sins or in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Let me use the story of the Passover for a moment. That was our Old Testament reading a few moments ago. The uh, the Jewish people had been slaves in Egypt. It was terrible slavery. The Egyptians provoked God's anger the Israelites called out for God's pity. God gave the Egyptians nine gracious warnings in the form of plagues, and they would not release the people. And so God sent a tenth plague, the plague of the firstborn. And don't forget this, God was going to destroy all the firstborn of Egypt, a major portion of the population, including Pharaoh, including the next Pharaoh in line, because of their sin. And God was absolutely right to do so. And the only way to be protected from God's wrath was to have the blood of a lamb painted upon the doorpost. Do you get that? All who who were under the blood of the lamb would be passed over. That's why we call it Passover. But what would they be passed over from? The wrath of God himself from His consuming wrath. The Passover teaches us such an important truth. Only God can turn away His wrath from us. And He does so joyfully through His Son, Jesus Christ. See, it's against that ugly backdrop of divine wrath that the splendor of saving grace shines most brilliantly The wrath of God doesn't diminish the love of God, it vindicates it, and it shows us how glorious God is that He sent His Son to save us. So that's the second thing we see here, saved through God's Son. Look at our text again, verse 24, now to Him who's able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. How are we saved from god 's wrath? How are we made able to stand blameless before him when we ought to to be destroyed by him through His Son Jesus Christ? What did Jesus come to do? Well, he came to be a good teacher didn 't he? He came to teach us how to love our neighbor. Some of you went to churches that that was the extent of what you heard about Jesus. What about the cross? What did the cross accomplish? I heard this one time. The cross was Jesus showing us how to be a good example of loving our neighbor. And I remember thinking, I was a young Christian at the time, you know, if God wanted Jesus to be a good example, Jesus probably should have lived longer life, lived more than 33 years, and more should have been written about him, more of his deeds recorded for us, if all he came to do was to be a good example the chief reason Jesus came to the the world was to save us from the wrath that our sins rightly deserve. He came to deliver us from the wrath to come and the final judgment and the sentence of death that's hanging over the head of every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth. He came to slip the noose off of our necks He came to release us from the electric chair. He came to keep us from falling down into the lake of fire and brimstone that burns forever. I know this is not a warm and cuddly feel-good message. If you want warm and cuddly, get a dog. If you want salvation, come to Jesus Christ. Jesus was executed on a cross. He was counted among the worst of offenders. His death was real, and it was really terrible. And he bore the fullness of wrath in his death. Now, he bore the wrath of the Jews. They hated him. He bore the wrath of the soldiers, the Roman soldiers. But it wasn't primarily those two things. Jesus was primarily the object of his father's wrath upon the cross the most just, righteous, terrible wrath there has ever been. And this he did willingly, though every human impulse knew how awful it would be. Why would a man who never once sinned drink the fullness of the Father's wrath upon the cross? For us. You see, you've got to have the, the wrath to understand the grace. And it becomes really the best feel-good message there ever is. Because Christ hung on the cross, I can now stand blameless before God. Because every speck of filth that has ever come from my soul was laid upon Jesus. Jesus. I can stand, according to Jude, blameless before God. He who never sinned died a sinner's death. It was my death. It was your death. It was the death of the elect throughout all time. I want you to imagine for a moment a book with every sin you've ever committed. I don't know how big that book would be. It would have to be very small font. Let's open the book and see. Let's turn to A. Adultery. Abortion. Anger. Yeah, let's, let's change letters. Let's go to a different letter. Surely I haven't committed a lot of G sins, right? Greed. Gluttony. Gossip. What about W? Surely the W's are a short section, right? Don't worry. Let's close the book. That's enough for today, isn't it? If we see what our souls are guilty of, but of course, if we kept reading, we'd see it all. Bad tempers, and envy, and cheating on our taxes, and flattery, and murder, and little white lies, and self-righteousness, and all of the above. You know, that record of my debt is really long, isn't it? In fact, that book would probably stretch from here to California, just of my own sins, Look with me at Colossians 2 for a moment, please. Colossians 2, starting at verse 13. And you who were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing to the cross that whole book from A to Z. Nailed to the cross with Jesus. Do you get what Jesus went through upon the cross? He underwent the reality of hell, undiluted He was totally bereft of the grace and presence of God, utterly separated from all blessedness of the Father. He became a curse. Why? So that you might be blessed. He was condemned that you might be accepted. He saw darkness so that the light of his Father's countenance could come upon you. He was covered in filth so that you and I might stand before God without blemish. Christ cried out in agony so that you and I can cry, cry out according to Jude with great joy. When were you saved? For me, in a sense, I was saved January 14, 2000 as a freshman in college, but actually it, it was upon the cross that my redemption was accomplished. Jesus paid my debt in full on that dark day, and Jude wants them to understand that if you have been saved through the Son from the wrath of God, you are eternally secure. That's why Jude says to these fearful Christians, to him who is able to keep you from falling, he's reminding them that everything about their eternity hinges not on their grip of Christ, but Christ's grip of them. That's good news because, as you know and I know, we do fall. In fact, you could read Jude and say, well, I have fallen. I've fallen into all sorts of sins. Does that mean I'm not really a Christian? When it says falling here, that he'll keep you from falling or stumbling, as other versions say, it's not like a racehorse whose stride is perfectly gauged out to maximize its time and run the race perfectly. It's talking about He will not let you finally fall away. He he will not let you finally, fully fall into His wrath. Why? Because Jesus Christ already took it for all who would ever trust in Him. Jesus wants this flock to remember it's not their hold of Jesus that saves them it is Christ. It's not their flawless theology that saves them. It is Christ. It's not even their faith that saves them, though that is the instrument of it. It is Christ, and He gives them that faith. It is Christ's blood and merits that save us because He bore the Father's wrath for me and for all who trust in Him. Look not to your faith or your faithfulness, but to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, through whom we are saved from God's wrath. Well, third, Jude reminds us we are saved for God's glory. Look at verse 25. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. Many of you are familiar with the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? And it says man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. What if we were to reword that and say, what is God's chief end in the gospel? What is God's chief end in the gospel? What was the chief purpose for which Jesus came to the cross? There's always a tendency to give very earthy, man-centered answers, that He came to bring goodwill and peace on earth, or that we might be spared hell, or that He could be with us in heaven. Those are certainly things the cross accomplished, but none is the ultimate end, because none of those bring God front and center to our attention. the cross, our salvation is all his doing from beginning to end. The only thing you and I contributed to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. And therefore, the right response to being saved from God's wrath through God's Son is that we would live our lives for God's glory. That's the reason for which God saved us, is not for us, but that we would reflect and display to the ends of the earth the excellencies of who He is. That He could restore us to that original intent, that we would be His image bearers on earth. That doesn't denigrate our salvation to move the focus to God. It gives meaning to our salvation because this is not all about us, it is all about Him and His glory. And that is very good news. Let me give you a couple of reasons why it's good news that our salvation is all for the glory of God. First, it helps us understand the reason for which the world was made. Jude gives us wonderful doxology in verse 25 saying, All glory, majesty, power, or dominion, and authority belong to Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes we say, Give God the glory. We we sang that earlier. We're not giving God something He doesn't have. He already has all glory in Himself. What we're doing when we give God glory is reflecting and acknowledging and praising how glorious He is. See, that's the reason you were made. Isaiah three seven says that God created us for His glory, to be mirrors reflecting His image to the ends of the earth. The whole world exists to be a theater for the glory of God, and yet until we have seen the gospel in our hearts, we are completely blind to it. And so if we go through life thinking this life is all about us, it will be like Macbeth said, a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing when we live for ourselves, but when we understand that everything in this world, including our salvation, exists for the glory of God, it gives meaning to our lives. To quote John Calvin, men will never worship God with sincere heart or be roused to fear or obey Him with sufficient zeal until they properly understand how much they are indebted to His mercy. You cannot do what you were created to do apart from the saving grace of Jesus Christ and the gospel. Another reason it is good news that salvation is to the glory of God is because it makes our lives meaningful. I don't mean that in a therapeutic sense. I mean that in the sense of doing what we were created to do. Do you understand this? Whatever talent you have in this world, you are a steward of it for the glory of God. Every talent, every gift you have in this life, every resource you have in this life, you are a steward of it to the glory of God. We use our gifts to make much of ourselves and draw attention to ourselves, but you were given those gifts initially and redemptively for the purpose of making much of Christ. And you and I are to take every moment of every day and use it to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Everything you do should be done to the glory of God. Are there certain things that can't be done to the glory of God? Yeah, don't do them. Everything we were created to do ought to give glory to God. That's our stewardship. Eat, drink, mow the grass, change the baby's diaper to the glory of God. Third reason it's good news that we are saved for God's glory, it shows that the gospel will not fail. If the chief end of Christianity were about me, it would never work. About me getting my life in order, getting my theology in order, any of that stuff, it would never work. I could never do enough to get it right, to make myself blameless, to keep myself blameless enough to be able to stand before God. But in verse 25, Jude tells us, The hope of our eternity is based not on us, but on the unchanging nature of God. He says, before all time, now, and forever. I'm going to change tomorrow. I had a birthday this week. I got a lot older this week. I'll be older next time you see me. You'll be older next time I see you. I'll be a little grayer, and you'll point it out next time I see you. We change in this world. God is unchanging, and everything about our salvation rests not on our mutability, but the glory of God's immutability that He will never change. In the gospel, God has put His glory on the line, His reputation, in a sense, on the line, that He can save rebels and make us righteous, that He can turn sinners into saints, that He can take us with all of our warts and diseases and remake us into the image of God and set His name upon us Our salvation from beginning to end, from election before the foundation of the world to the, the redemptive work of the cross to Christ's final coming is all a work of God's glory, and He will not let it fail. Your salvation rests on God's reputation, and He cannot fail. Hope you can see how wondrous this good news is for us, that we have a God who graciously took the wrath which we deserve through his Son in order to spare us so that we might live to his glory. Let me try to land this plane. Sometimes pastors can circle the runway a few too many times. I'm going to try to land it. I want you to see how refreshing this news is because we live in a culture that ironically says it hates the idea of wrath. What is wrath but the execution of judgment? I want you to think just a moment about the anger of our world when someone doesn't believe what they should believe or behave what they should be- beha- the way they should behave. The wrath of our world is poured out upon them, isn't it? You see that every day in cancel culture, don't you? You see a celebrity that says the wrong thing, that does the wrong thing, and somebody who was once beloved by all is now cast out. That is wrath right there. Do you realize that? And there is no redemption. There is no redemption in our world. You're not woke enough, you're canceled. You tweeted the wrong thing 10 years ago, even though all of us agreed with it back then, you're canceled today you've got too big of a carbon footprint, you're canceled. You hold to biblical sexual ethics, you're canceled. That is wrath. But the world's wrath, unlike the wrath of God, the world's wrath has no redemption. Far better news is that there is a God who has all authority to judge, who has every right to pour his wrath out upon you and me, But he has chosen to save us from it through his son. And it's all for his glory. How do we apply this text? For one thing, God keeps us. But I want you to see, God keeps us through means. And here's what I mean by that God keeps us through means. We, we saw it in verse 1, kept for Jesus Christ. You see it here, keep you from stumbling. God gives us supernatural persevering grace. If you are a believer, you will persevere to the end, but one of the things we need to realize is God uses means in the process. One of the things God uses in your perseverance is the preaching of the Word, the reading of the Word. He, he uses theology and creeds and confessions. You know when you're driving down the road, and you start to drift, and you hit what are called rumple strips, and they go, ( blinkingarlos) until you steer back into the lane. Creeds and confessions are one of the ways that God keeps us in the faith, is by alerting us that, that we are starting to veer off. You know, creeds and confessions, they're not scripture. They could be wrong, but they're a very good warning. You know, it's always a good warning when you're, when you find you're believing something that nobody in the history of the church has ever believed, you are probably going off the road. Creeds and confessions and other means are the ways in which God often keeps us. This is why we believe in training children. Train them in the Shorter Catechism. Train them in our theology so that as they get older and they're confronted with all sorts of bad ideas, and they will be, they can understand, no, 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 there is a such thing as truth. My parents loved me enough to teach me the truth and God is going to keep me in the truth. So God keeps us, but he uses means in the process. Second, I want you to ponder this this afternoon. Would people say of you that you live your life to the glory of God? Of course, the people, really, I'd start with those closest to you, your, your spouse, your co-workers, your, your, your children, You know, so many people profess to be Christians, but when it all boils down, we live more for sporting events or we live more for video games or for shopping or for gossip or for social media than we do the gospel. And Christianity is really just a side hobby. Christ redeemed you for far more than for you to wander through life with Christianity as a side hobby fishing for me as a side hobby. I do it when I feel like it. I do it when nothing else gets in the way, but most of the time something else gets in the way. For a fisherman, it is his livelihood. Is the glory of God a side hobby for you, or is it your livelihood? Is it what you live for? Let us stop treating Christianity and the glory of God as something we can get to if nothing else comes up, and start living all of our life from the moment we wake up to the moment we lay down at night intentionally looking at the world saying, how can I live this moment to the glory of God? Would people say that of you? Let's pray together. Lord Christ, we thank you for how the gospel is displayed against the backdrop of what we deserve, the wrath that is rightly ours for sin. Father, I pray that you would enamor us with the Lord Jesus, that he loved us even when our record of debt stretched from here to the moon, and he took that record and nailed it to the cross so that we can stand blameless before you. With great joy. Ah, Praise you, Lord. We ask all this in.